Hi, I'm Peggy Garrity, Chancellor of the University of Alberta, and you're listening to the recently renamed Bridging Connections. Every couple of months, I pull together small groups of people connected to the U of A community to discuss important topics and share ideas. In November, I hosted a group of people at CKUA in Edmonton to hear from Lana Cuthbertson, one of the co-founders of Aretto Labs, a company that's on a mission to make digital communities more positive and inclusive. We know that online abuse and harassment is epidemic, devastating, and more dangerous than ever. In this conversation, we explore what's happening in this strange world of online abuse. You'll hear some startling facts and understand the scope of the problem. But beyond just wringing our hands in despair, we'll also talk about what's being done by Lana and her team at Aretto Labs to confront these problems. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I know a bit about the story of how um, of how you got started uh, with Aretto Labs, but. Can you tell us how you how you took on an issue that's as big and complex as this one and decided we can make a business out of this? Uh, I certainly can. Thanks, Peggy. Hello, everyone. What a pleasure. This is uh, so much fun. I, I just am so excited. And um, oh, yeah, radio training. <laughs> um, uh, so excited to be here and so feeling so sorry for Casey that she's missing out, but um, yeah, I'm excited. And uh, it's nice because it feels like we have all sorts of time. I can get like deep into the history of how this all started. And it's nice because my mother is here as well. And uh, she's a huge inspiration for probably why I care about gender equality, um, because as a kid, she and uh, a handful of other parents from our elementary school started something called the Kindergarten Committee during some of the government issues in the 90s in Alberta. And um, I'm, I, I trace back to those moments of, of being kids sort of vaguely aware of what was going on, but knowing the importance of that type of work. So thanks, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then that kind of fast forwards to um, working with Karen, who's sitting right next to her on uh, a number of political campaigns. There was uh, Karen sort of called and said, you're coming down to the campaign office and you're making phone calls for Ronna Ambrose. And I was like, who's that? What? <laughs> um, and uh, so then I thought, well, why, you know, why aren't there more women in politics? This was always a big question for me. And um, so in university, started a student group. Um, we were just talking about student groups with, I think, Tina and Princess are around somewhere over there. Um, and uh, student groups are so awesome because it's a great opportunity for younger people to have a, a, a great leadership experience in a contained environment. So um, I worked on a group there called Equal Voice Alberta North, uh, a chapter of the national organization dedicated to electing more women to public office, um, but a, a student chapter there, and it was a miserable failure. <laughs> it was just a disaster, but learned a lot from that and then went on to continue volunteering with those organizations. And Casey and I, our original work together was co-founding a nonprofit here in Edmonton called Parity YEG, dedicated to, to electing more women, specifically to city council here. Um, and I would say, you know, 2013, 2014, we were having coffee with women and we would hear, 
the sort of similar story of my biggest challenge is fundraising. I, I can't access some of the same networks that are available to my my, my peers who are men, um, that's something I'm now currently experiencing in a different context in entrepreneurship, and uh, so that's another story. But uh, then fast forwarding to sort of 2016, 2017, the conversation became, my biggest barrier to this job is my fear of social media and uh, facing harassment and abuse on those platforms. And so um, we uh, said, okay, you know what, it's probably, time to see if we can do something about that as an organization. And um, Edmonton being the fabulous place that it is and all of these people, wonderful people being part of a community, I called up Alex, who's sitting here as well, and said, hey, would you help me build this weird bot idea that we came up with for Twitter? And um, so we came up with this idea of parody bot. And the very basic idea was that it would detect negative tweets um, using machine learning and then post a positive tweet for every negative tweet it detected. <clears throat> we ran that technology in the Alberta 2019, I think in provincial election and the Canadian 2019 federal election. Um, had some really interesting um, experiences talking to some of the women running in those elections. And one of my first moments of sort of thinking about what we had done um, was hearing from a candidate who said, you know, aside from everything else, it was just nice to know that somebody was watching. And that has really stuck with me um, throughout all of this work. So anyway, then we carried on with ParityBot. I never really, I still hadn't thought of it as, a, as something that could be turned into a business or that would be a, an opportunity for entrepreneurship. Um, until we published an academic paper and kind of connected with the broader global community on this topic. And um, I just started, I don't know, it's just a moment where you start to feel the momentum of, of an idea. Uh, that's how I would describe it best. But um, after we published that paper, I had connected with a few key people who then kind of connected me with some other people. And I thought, I think, I think people need this, like people need to access something like this. And the way that we tend to access things we need now is to buy them at a store. <laughs> uh, and this isn't quite you know, as straightforward as that, but I thought there's gotta be a way where we can use the mechanisms of, of, of business to um, make this technology, if it's helpful to people, uh, accessible. Um, and so then I called Casey and I said, we're starting something again. <laughs> I need you to open a bank account, <laughs> and uh, and uh, she did, and she was she was into it too. So we um, embarked on our journey of of founding Aretto Labs, sort of on the on the idea of of Parity Bot and some of the very basic technology that we had built at that point. Um, and then we entered into the entrepreneur sort of support system, mostly here in Edmonton, um, which is truly fantastic, and we're able to access lots of support programs, grant programs, a lot of like the Canadian tech scene is sort of, um, you know, known for uh, a lot of grant support. And that's been really interesting and uh, I guess important for us. Um, and now we are uh, a tech startup with 10 team members, um, mostly based in Alberta, but a few scattered across Canada and uh, working with some interesting customers and our technology pieces have morphed into a product and um, we're, we'll, we try week after week to stay alive. <laughs>
that's that's the story of most of most startups, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk for a few minutes about the scope of the of the problem. Um, just you know, we know because we all hear something almost every day about this this happening. Um, and it, as I was preparing for this conversation, I, I, I read a report. It's called, interestingly, it's called The Chilling, uh, which is a global study of online violence against women journalists in particular. And I, and I have to say the stories in there truly are chilling. Um, people saying that the th they had threats that they wanted to kill me, that uh, they'd come after my family. That's quite common that that it, it'll, it'll come after their family next. And, and then I looked at a Canada-wide um, survey again of journalists in 2021, and 69% of the women in that case reported experiencing online threats and harassment over the, just over the past year. Mm -hmm. And um, almost 80% said that the frequency had increased over the past two years, so it's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not getting better. And, and we know it happens close to home. We, we watched Minister Christia Freeland and her staff get accosted in Grand Prairie. And we heard from Calgary's Mayor Gondek about the, some of her experiences. So we know it's not something that happens to someone else. So give us a bit of your, your thoughts, Lana, on, on how big this problem is and and who are the primary targets? I know some of the clients that you work with, but yeah. who are the people that really are the, the primary targets of this? Yeah, um, you know, the, the problem is as big as our world is. Um, and all of those reports are important. And uh, the, the good thing about those reports coming out is that it um, there's more and more attention and data being collected and, and paid to the issue. Um, and so, you know, the, they illustrate quite well how big the problem is. And I, I sort of think like you can look at some of the, um, the, the tech platforms are, you know, a, a good anchor to think about the size of the problem because they're some of the biggest companies in the world. And there are 2 billion people who use Facebook, um, not to mention users of some of these other platforms. And to think about, um, the, the proportion of people who rely on those platforms to, to do their jobs or who find themselves at the center of a, a viral event or who, um, hang out in a, a normal kind of everyday community, like we would think of, you know, the, a classroom maybe, and then, um, meet new ways to suffer from something like bullying online. Um, there's increasingly, I would say, a blurring between our online and offline spaces and communities, and we all exist in groups. And that, that's, I would just, I would use that to describe the scale of the problem. Um, and then, you know, it also describes a little bit about who, who sort of suffers more from from this type of um, this type of issue. So, you know, we started, as I mentioned, in the world of politics because uh, that was something that we were familiar with. And um, in the in the data that we worked with, it, it's sort of anecdotal, um, but more than half of, of of women politicians in the in the um, in the ways that we in the in the instances I guess where we ran Parity Bot um, suffered from some sort of like negative tweet or online abuse incident. So it's it's now the majority of people who tend to have um, public facing jobs, especially 
people who have public facing jobs that are at the center of a lot of our sort of like power conversations is the way I would, I would describe it. Um, but also people who have public facing jobs who are really important parts of the fabric of our culture. So we're working a lot with sports teams, for example, and athletes, um, and, uh, influencers, um, who, you know, it's, it's a, uh, someone told me this the other day. I don't remember if it was you, maybe, Peggy. <laughs> Forgive me, babe. I might need to credit you for this idea, but um, someone told me that uh, the number one job now that school-age kids aspire to is to be an influencer. Um, and thinking about the the struggles that they that they face in this in this world is um, is really uh, horrifying in some ways. And like anyone who really dares to have an opinion online and share it. Um, especially if, if then that's part of your job, it's, uh, you really suffer from this. And so, um, yeah, it's, a it's, it's a, it's a massive, massive problem. And, um, we, we think of, I think sometimes we think of these platforms as one thing, like it's Facebook and it's Twitter and it's Instagram and it's YouTube. Um, but when you kind of break that down and think about it, there are millions and millions of micro communities and groups where this is a different, slightly different type of problem in, in each space. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's big, it's big, <laughs> it's big. And, it, and the other thing is it's, it's big and it's so personal. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's the other thing. It's, it, um, it, I, I was, I was reading actually, um, a report also from the, UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, and and uh, uh, and that report said that the harms caused by online violence, sexist hate speech, and disinformation are real and diverse, mm -hmm. affecting the mental and physical health of those targeted, undermining their confidence and autonomy, stigmatizing them, and generating fear, shame, and professional and reputational damage. It's just the scope of the impact is. Mm -hmm is just, um, it's just so devastating. And so from the people that you work with, the clients that you work with, mm -hmm. what do you hear from them about how they recover, how they, how they deal with this? Yeah. Um, so there are a number of, of things that we hear and some of those, some of the ways that people are currently dealing with it are also part of the problem and the impact. So um, the, the report, The Chilling, it's, it's been talked about a lot in our, in our circles. Um, and one of the things that it, it explains is, well, naturally what happens when you're told that you're not welcome in a space, most people will leave. And so, uh, one of the biggest ways that people are currently dealing with this problem is leaving social media, um, not posting anymore, not using their voices and sharing their ideas. And then we, th when we think about what a loss that is for our world, um, it's, you know, it, there's a huge, like, like you outlined, there's a huge impact on an individual on so many levels, online and offline security issues trickle into the real world. It's, it's a huge problem. Um, but for all of us collectively as a society, it's a huge problem to lose all of these voices in places where we're all hanging out now. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we hear, we hear from our, our clients that, um, that that's that's now that's that's how they've been dealing with it up until now. Um, other ways people deal with it are um, to use some of the, like the platforms have put in place some 
little bits and pieces of tools to deal with it technologically. And this is kind of what we're, you know, what our software does. And I can get into, it's probably not super interesting, but, um, but there are some moderation tools that, uh, that are baked into the platforms. And then there are some of our, like what I would call our competitors, um, software that, that just, you know, practically help people, um, block people who are harassing, um, you know, on the flip side of that, the interesting problem with, with what we hear, especially actually from the media industry. So it really, I won't get too deep into it. <laughs> Stop me if I'm rambling. Go ahead. But uh, <laughs> depending on the industry, there, there are quite different needs. So, mm. you know, the sports industry, they're not really too worried about, about blocking trolls and, you know, muting and deleting and just getting rid of some of the bad stuff. But um, in the media industry, and actually Senator Paula Simons, um, talked to us about this once a few months ago, she sort of said, you know, there's a weird nuance on Twitter where if you're blocked, um, people are notified of that. And so they can become even bigger trolls and even a bigger part of the problem. And for someone who's in a role that's public facing and sort of with a, a public responsibility, um, and this often then goes into the world of journalism and politics, uh, I th people in those roles see it as their job to um, be in those public conversations and exist in those spaces. So the same set of tools may, may not work for different groups of people. Um, so we see a, a pretty broad range of how people deal with this, but, um, increasingly the, 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 the compelling sort of business opportunity, I guess, for us here is that increasingly employers of public facing people are seeing this as a threat to their business and through it being a threat to their people. And so we're starting to see some organizations um, be interested in putting in place tools to deal with this problem, um, to protect their people online, but also to make sure that they're not excluding a broader audience that they can reach. So, you know, some of the customers that we're working with are um, some big sports organizations who <clears throat> want to expand their fan base and grow their audience. And, um, as, as they try to reach a, a younger audience and a younger generation, there's more realization that there's less, um, less tolerance for something like this, a, a broader consciousness for some of these issues. And so putting something in place like the software that we're providing has a few important effects of, you know, lessening the noise, um, making a space more positive and inclusive, and then practically including this broader audience, which then helps their bottom line of selling more tickets to the game. Yeah. I think you're so right that, you know, aside from the personal damage um, that these things cause, the fact that, you know, I would be one of those people. Just stay away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very cautious as it, as it is, as I, as I think most people are. Mm -hmm. But but when you think about the voices that are being silenced mm -hmm. and and that social media is such a primary way that people get information, share thoughts, discuss ideas. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why I like doing this in person. Mm -hmm. um, but it but the impacts are are ex extend so far. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, I, I'm just so curious about, because I have this stereotype in my mind about who does this, you know, and <laughs> I, I, sorry to say this, but I, I think he, um, and I, I think of, of a creepy person sitting in their basement that's just unleashing their venom on, on everyone. And I, I'm sure that that stereotype is really not accurate at all. Mm -hmm. um, but, 
But what have you been able to find out or does it really even matter who's doing this and, and whether it's actually who, uh, but, but more so the tools that they are, they're using to amplify that voice. Yeah. Cause it's not just one individual um, sometimes it is, but yeah. but it gets much broader than that. Totally, yeah. It's a it's a broad range, um, and we've learned this through, you know, uh, talking to lots of people. So we through what we would call our customer discovery process, understanding um, their their view of of who the perpetrators are, um, reading a lot of the research that's that's been done on the da with data, and and there are lots of, of organizations who have have um, put together studies and information about who's doing this. Um, and uh, we've, <laughs> we've, we've put together a, a sort of a, a shortcut framework to describe um, who these people are. And we call it the four M's and I can only remember three of the M's. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first one is microaggressions. There's a middle one. Um, then there's malicious and malevolent and uh, that is sort of uh, the range of, um, it's one of the ways that I would describe the range of people and the range of, of, of words being said. And part of the reason why we've developed a, a, a specific um, you know, machine learning tool that can uh, detect microaggressions uh, because we found that that was a, a gap. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a range of people from you and me. We, you know, we might be sitting on our phone on the, on the bus or something. Um, getting caught up by the sort of the, the, the broil of the community that we're in online and tweet something that we wouldn't ever say to anyone in person um, that I, I would argue is part of the, the reason why we have this problem is because these platforms polarize people mm -hmm. for their bottom line of the more people who are engaged with extreme emotions, the more money we make on um, advertising because we can say these are our numbers. Here's here's how great it is to advertise on our platform. So all of us are susceptible to the behavioral um, manipulation tools that that platforms have ended up being. Um, the weird part is that our our company is kind of trying to use some of the same tactics for a better end um, <laughs> to harness I think that that's technology. Good, not weird. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, like it, then there's a whole interesting part of government regulation and like where that comes into it and who's allowed to do that. It sort of feels like, are we really allowed to take that much power and like manipulate the world? And like, they've been allowed to do it. So I guess we can do it too. I don't know. But anyway, so you and me all the way to, you know, state actors, like organized state um, troll farms uh, that are out to very deliberately um, cause uh, chaos in, in, in a culture or a country. Um, and then there's kind of everything in between. So um, one of the things that we have learned is that different people have different interests in terms of understanding who these people are and how to deal with them. And, uh, it's a it's a fun juicy technical problem to try to figure out how you how you trace who's doing what across platforms and identify them and figure out how to report them um, and this also then becomes a problem of you know like a, a a national security problem actually ultimately and so it's there I mean this is why I'm so excited about the market opportunity <laughs> of <laughs> of this startup because it's it's a huge problem. Um, and people are are really really searching for solutions, and we're just at the beginning of 
the 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 ways that technology can evolve to solve these problems and so it's yeah that's like it's fun for me to be able to feel like there's this important social problem to solve and uh, a really cool movement in the market and the way things are going you can just you know the more we learn about this the more need we see it from different mm -hmm. places and um, it's exciting to be in a place where we can also have combined technical expertise with um, some Casey and Jackie and I all have backgrounds in communications in some way. Um, thanks to Peggy <laughs> and, uh, that's critical for this job and, um, it's an advantage I think we have too. Absolutely. It's, um, I, I'd like us to talk a bit more about the, about the solutions, but I, I, I just finished reading a book called Story Messenger by Neil, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is one of those, um, uh, space uh, physicist. He's quite a brilliant writer, and this is a really good book. But he says, differences in opinion enrich, enrich the diversity of a nation and ought to be cherished and respected in a free society, provided everyone remains free to disagree uh, with one another. And most importantly, everyone remains open to rational arguments that could actually change your mind. Sadly, the conduct of many in social media has devolved to the opposite of this. Their recipe, find an opinion they disagree with and unleash waves of anger and outrage because your views don't agree with theirs. And you know, it, it makes you, sometimes I read that, it makes me want to despair, like how can we possibly stop that? I know it's convenient and, and many people do this. They blame the big tech companies why, why are they not fixing this mm -hmm. problem? And uh, it does make me wonder because it's so big. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, um, and I think, uh, I'm curious about what you think they are doing, but also it seems to me that it's very convenient for them to kind of slip behind the covers of freedom of expression mm -hmm. and, and say, well, it's up to the community to, uh, to self-moderate this. What, what are they doing and how much can we really expect them to do? Um, I, I, I mean, I take the opinion that they're not doing enough and that we, you know, it, it would be pretty disappointing to expect them to do more. Um, there is a lot of conversation about it, I would say. And I, you know, when you, th it's, it's interesting because I think I am certain that you could go to any sort of data ethics team at any of these companies, except Twitter's, which has just been fired in its entirety. <laughs> we don't have one anymore. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Um, and those individuals, I'm sure, care as much about this as, as you and I do and are working really hard to try to do something about it. Um, but also, you know, for me, it's been really interesting to go through this building a startup journey at the same time as thinking about this issue. Um, and, it, you know, I think that I have a lot of thoughts. I, I could go on a bit of a tangent. I'll try not to. But, um, you know, it started working at ATB. I've just finished reading a book by the Unilever CEO and the Pepsi CEO, former. They both just left their jobs. Um, and knowing how deeply a, a purposeful company can be not just profitable, but the most profitable is, um, a cool thing. It feels like a cool secret to have. <laughs> um, and it's amazing. I feel very lucky to, to know this, uh, at a level. Um, I think 
And I think there's a lack of knowledge of that, uh, probably at these big tech companies. And I, I can see, I can just see how difficult it would be for a company that's now quite well established, um, that has made so much money in a very particular way of designing an algorithm meant to grab and hold attention to sell ads to then decide that there should be a fundamental change in how they do business. And um, I, I, I think it'll be, a, you know, I've talked about this a lot actually over the last couple of weeks because of everything going on with Twitter right. and seeing the life cycles of some of the social media platforms and, and the ways that some of the first ones to really, really emerge in a humongous way start to change and, and to see the ways that they're trying to change themselves, you know, and see them struggle with that. It sort of feels like in a lot of ways predictable. Um, and, uh, it's, it's cool to also be, you know, running, a running a small startup and knowing how fast we can move and what an advantage that is. Um, I, I, I heard rumors about that <laughs> and kind of now see it and have experienced a little bit of, you know, what that means, um, how difficult it is as a huge company to disrupt yourself. Mm, and, exactly. um, and so I, I think that's, it's just such a hard, hard, hard problem. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, I don't really hold it against them, I guess, in that way. Like it's, it's tough. And I don't know, I, I couldn't say that I would be doing anything. It, it takes so much courage and so much bravery and, and care, I think, to make that big a change. Um, so I, I don't think we'll see it happen from within those right. platforms. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, other, the other thing we hear a lot about, or at least I have, I remember, Lana, you invited me to listen in on a conversation. You were a panelist. Uh, I think it was the Canadian Embassy that had arranged a session in, in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, Lana was one of the panelists on that. And, and a, a number of other people, they put a lot of emphasis on law enforcement, that we've got to get stricter laws and we've got to have more police enforcement and more court resources to deal with this because the only way it'll really stop is if the penalties are so harsh that and people are held accountable for it. And yet, you know, just at our first conversation when I was talking with um, Doug Stollery about the Vereen case, and so we have law, mm -hmm. we, have, uh, we have protection against, um, against uh, discrimination on the basis of, of sexual orientation, and yet people to this day are discriminated against and harassed because of their sexual orientation. So it makes me skeptical about, mm -hmm. about that as being a solution. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but it, it feels to me like the, the police and the courts don't really have the expertise or the capacity to deal with it. And if we're trying to put too many eggs in that basket, they might crack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, we're seeing an interesting, so I have two kind of two two roads in my mind going forward on this. There's a really interesting regulatory landscape, to use some jargony, cliche kind of words, um, happening in Europe, which unfortunately Casey knows a lot more about than I do. Um, so if she were here, I would toss the mic over to her. But she's been um, really exploring that world because Europe is farther ahead and Australia and New Zealand a little bit than North America, Canada in particular on some legislation being put in place to um, start to try to deal with this issue. But you're right, it's like, 
you know, there's a law, but how much can be enforced? And, um, you know, it kind of makes me think a little bit about the, um, you know, now there was a change a few years ago where we all now go to websites and we have to accept the cookies on the website. I, I can see there being maybe a bit of a similar thing happening in the next few years for companies who, and the way Casey has described it, um, companies that advertise on these platforms will will start to have some liability for the, the content or um, around where their ads are placed, if that makes sense. Um, so it won't just be the platforms that will be accountable. It will be companies that rely on, um, on advertising on them that will have a role to play. And I think like, you know, there's lots of ideas in my mind about where a technology like ours might fit into helping companies stay compliant. But, um, I honestly think the bigger opportunity for a solution is around communications and culture. And I, I look at you and Kim, <laughs> um, because at ATB, that was such a huge lesson for me and an amazing experience to be part of, uh, and Adam, of course, <laughs> as I see his head poke up over there, um, <laughs> uh, to be part of learning about a cultural change and transformation and what communication deliberate thoughtful communication can do about that. And so, you know, my like crazy wacky idea dream for a solution is that we will all live alongside an automated agent of some kind in our digital communities whose responsibility it will be to maintain and create a, a positive culture. So I'm automating all of us out of jobs, unfortunately, is my, is my big idea, but we just need an agent of kindness. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> One of the things um, that I've been so uh, intrigued by as I, as I watch the journey of Aretto Labs is that it, it's, it sometimes is easy to feel that it's hopeless. And, and yet I see the kinds of things that you're doing that are very practical kinds of, of tools that companies and individuals can can use um, so it, it makes it feel like it isn't just this big big thing that we can't tackle at all mm -hmm. and so tell us a little bit about some of those tools I mean I'm sure lots of us are curious about them uh, cool I'll give you my little elevator pitch sure. <laughs> um, so uh, I told I talked a little bit about about ParityBot, the very original kind of technology idea where we said, let's post a positive tweet for every negative tweet we detect. And our Aretto software platform has evolved from there. So that was the seed of the idea. But now um, what, we, what we have built is a, like a, a, a web app, basically. So you can, it's like a piece of software you could go to, you know, arettolabs.com and click log in. And um, like many of you probably use, like I use QuickBooks. I love QuickBooks. What a weird <laughs> thing that I've ended up loving QuickBooks accounting software. <laughs> yeah, Christina <laughs> loves hearing that. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so it's, it's like that. So you log in and, um, you know, if you've used a social media management tool before, it, it's in that same broad category where you can load in the uh, social accounts that you want to track. And 
um, you know, depending on the platform, there are different permissions required. But basically, then you can you have visibility into the comments that a certain account is is receiving. So, you know, at Peggy Garrity on Twitter, you know, if you've posted a strong opinion, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> and uh, and the trolls come out. You know, we can start to see. Oh, okay, there's something going on here. You've got a dashboard that um, that shows you what's going on, and we kind of call that our our track pillar. So that's the first part of the technology is. Um, the machine learning algorithms um, analyzing and scoring all the data, the language that's coming in to, towards your account um, and saying, okay, yeah, we've got five extremely toxic tweets here. Um, do you want to see what the pattern was over the last month, over the last year? Here are some reports and analytics. You know, different organizations have different use cases. So, you know, one example would be that um, we've just worked with Sports New Zealand to track the Rugby World Cup and the athletes that played in that over the last few weeks. And they're really particularly interested in those reports that they can generate and talk about. Um, another customer that we're working with in the UK is called Team Heroin. They work with women in sports and, you know, they love those reports as well. And they both take them to do business development and um, talk about unique ways that they can use this data to tell stories. And so that's a big part of it. Um, the middle piece is our moderate piece. So then those five really toxic tweets that Peggy received, she can just go through and autom you know, manually or automatically um, deal with them in whatever way she chooses. So um, again, that depends on the context and the customer, but a lot of people just want to you know, block, mute, delete, hide, filter, report. Maybe there's a, a security team that needs to see it. Those reports can be automated. Um, and then the third pillar is uh, our counteract pillar. So like this is where my weird dream of this robot in your Facebook group comes in that we haven't really built fully yet. Um, but other pieces are uh, directed towards the, the consequences of some of these um, negative pieces online. So, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, dealing with some of the mental health impacts. So we would send an email to, um, to someone under attack in a moment and say, hey, we've noticed a high volume. Is everything okay? Here's some resources. Here's where you can check in. Um, and yeah, again, different different customers kind of want slightly different combinations of some of those features. So some of our customers are um, uh, tracking their own brand accounts. So like it would be sort of at ATB Financial rather than at at Peggy. Um, these lines are increasingly blurring as brands realize that people are more interesting <laughs> than brands and um, their stories are the ones that are, you know, valuable to people to hear about. And so um, um, that's, yeah, it's, uh, so that's, anyway, that's basically what the, the, the software does at this point. Um, there are some nuances, like I mentioned, we're working on a uh, inc improving increasingly our microaggressions detection model. There's lots of fun stuff that Alex can tell you way more about than I can <laughs> about the machine learning technology, that uh, the way it's evolving. Um, the, the trend that we're seeing now is something called large language models. And you've probably seen some of this, the text generation and even image generation capabilities now are like vastly, enormously different and improved even compared to a few years ago. And that opens up lots of possibilities for us to deliver some of the automated, like proactive interventions. And um, my, you know, ultimately I really believe that the problem will be better solved by that proactive piece. Um, 
lots of our customers currently just want to get rid of it. And it makes sense to me that, that they would want that as well, of course. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's, that's why the spectrum of what we offer is, uh, it's a bit of a menu people can choose. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lana Cuthbertson from Aretto Labs. On our next episode, you'll hear some of the questions and conversation that came out of my interview with Lana. This is definitely a topic that got the members of our audience thinking. Bridging Connections is hosted by me, Peggy Garrity. It's produced by Tyrell Brochu, Amissa Jablonski, and Adam Rosenhart. The show is edited by Adverb Communications. Bridging Connections is recorded live at the CKUA Edmonton event space in the old Alberta Hotel. Big thanks to the team at CKUA for welcoming us into their space. Thank you.